challenges of AI is ability to scale knowledge. And then if you match knowledge necessary to perform a task with where scarcity might be, then there's a really great intersection for AI. And what's really interesting about them bringing that to the edge is all of this data gets created at the edge. We can't physically put people to go analyze that data at every single data ingestion point. It's just not scalable. There's not enough people in the world to go do it. So it's a good spot to bring AI and then start to turn all of the data, whether it's video Hi and welcome to Conversations with Des. I'm your host, Des Blanchfield. Today, we have the pleasure of being joined by Alexis Crowell. Now, Alexis is the IoT Marketing Global Lead for Intel Corporation. Alexis, welcome to the show. Great to have you. Thanks for making time to join us. Absolutely. Thanks so much, and I'm looking forward to it. So before we kick off into a couple of great topics, which I'll just outline in a moment, I wonder if we could uh, maybe get a quick outline of kind of what the role of IoT Marketing uh, global lead for Intel Corporation entails and what a day in the life of Alexis Crowell uh, is like, maybe a, a bit of pre and post COVID-19 to keep it interesting. <laughs> sure, absolutely. Um, so I'm really fortunate. I get to run marketing inside of Intel, but it's a set of businesses, which is what makes it really fun. Um, we look at it as wonderful vertical um, focused areas for IoT and whether we're talking about retail or industrial or health and life sciences, my team's responsible for um, the marketing and go-to-market elements of all of those businesses. So we've got great partnerships across the business and across our sales counterparts. It's um, super tightly connected, but you know, a day in the life for me is I get to have a lot of customer conversations because the most fun of this job is telling their stories. Right, we are fundamental believers that um, our customers and our partners are the heroes of the story. We just get to enable the story. Um, you know, so having conversations with uh, you know customers like GE Healthcare or Audi or um, you know some of the big retail chains that are undergoing really interesting transformations right now, thanks to COVID, um, and then talking about how we can help them, and then putting those stories out to then help other customers is a big part of what I get to do. Wow. You've got one of the best jobs I've ever heard. I want that job. Um, I, <laughs> I am super fortunate. I am not confused. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'd be jumping out of bed every day to do that job. And, and uh, we'll geek out in a minute about what some of that entails as far as the uh, implementation and design go. So we're going to talk about three key things that uh, are on the top of everyone's minds around this space. But in particular, our overall theme for today is artificial intelligence at the edge or AI at the edge. And I imagine that's more machine learning as opposed to deep learning at this stage. But given that you work with the likes of, I imagine, airlines and 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 uh, automotive, particularly uh, you know, cars that are getting more intelligent, uh, there is more and more deep learning involved. But um, when we talk about AI in the edge, I'd, I'd like us to talk about a couple of key things. Uh, it'd be great to get some highlights around some of the current macro trends that you're seeing around the whole space of AI at the edge. And then it'd be, I'd love us to sort of get some sort of industry's perspective you can share around the adoption and some of the challenges and opportunities that you're seeing in this space. And then I believe you've got a uh, customer story you can share with us around GE Healthcare and maybe some insights around what Intel's customer approach entails that we're hearing a bit about, and particularly how to turn data into in- actionable insights, which we'll delve into. So let's kick off maybe with, a, uh, if you could potentially give us a 30,000-foot view uh, in some sort of outline format of what Intel's seeing regarding current macro trends around this whole space of applying artificial intelligence at the edge. Yeah, absolutely. So we think of AI as really the um, ability to scale knowledge. And then if you match knowledge necessary to perform a task with where scarcity might be, then there's a really great intersection for AI. 
Um, and what's really interesting about them bringing that to the edge is all of this data gets created at the edge, right? So we can't physically put people to go analyze that data at every single data ingestion point. It's just not scalable. There's not enough people in the world to go do it. So it's a good spot to bring AI and then start to turn all of the data, whether it's video streams, audio streams, um, even just photographic images, uh, watching cars come off of an assembly line, that all can get turned into real-time um, insights or real-time actionable data if you bring AI into the mix. So what we're seeing is that over time, 76, 77, you know, somewhere in the 70s percentage of um, AI, mostly inference, will sit at the edge and we'll be able to bring more and more of that compute horsepower to the point of data creation. So if you think of, you know, um, uh, protecting your office buildings or having you know, controlled access to make sure that it's your employees coming into your space, you could have a real-time inference um, camera enabled at that point of entry. And then it's checking if you have a, a face mask policy. It's checking to see if that person's got a face covering on. If you've got, you know, certain people are in at certain times, it can do all of that for you. And it's not requiring people sitting in that moment um, making those decisions and determinations. So again, you know, kind of that match of you need knowledge, you need to be able to tell what's happening. But then that match of scarcity too becomes this amazing opportunity for where AI can take off. No, uh, like so that. what we're seeing is, yeah, what we're seeing is across the industry, everybody's starting to take advantage of that, right? Healthcare is a natural intersection point because there's never enough doctors or radiologists, um, especially in the more rural or kind of country settings. Um, so when you start to think through, well, how could we help some of, you know, the big um, medical companies bring some of that uh knowledge that that understanding into the mix at some of these places where maybe access to a radiologist isn't as fast, then we can help speed time to diagnosis. We speed the patient care. You know, you can help speed up a lot of the processes that may take longer times due to access, right? Due to that scarcity, mental, scarcity problem. Um, so there's, there's a lot of really cool opportunity there. Um, you know, and there's, I think that I, I keep going back to the intersection point, right? Because where you get knowledge and scarcity, technology tends to always be a solution and AI can be even more powerful because then you've got this just prime point to build really solid algos that can then help you get to the next level of your business. Wow. I like that. Uh, although it's not happening so much now, I remember when the uh, Boeing, uh, 787 came out and uh, the Dreamliner and they announced that about 6,000 sensors in the body of the plane, predominantly the wings because they flex about 25 degrees when they take off and uh, we did some math around, uh, uh, this is some time ago we did some math around how much data that turned into and it was something in the order of about 1.4 1.5 petabytes of data per day just in the US domestic market because it worked out there was 87,400 domestic flights a day multiplied by the number of planes, the number of flights and we were like Hang on a second. If there's you know a petabyte or so from every plane every day, and there's eighty seven thousand four hundred flights, it just it was something ridiculous like two hundred twenty petabytes a day that had to yep. be copied from the edge to some central data center to be analyzed, and it just wasn't going to be feasible. And then of course when we played that out, as you said, across other spaces, um, you know, and I guess mobile phones have, have shown us this now that we're predominantly you know we're not moving everything up to the edge. We're only moving metadata because we can't copy everything off our phones and images and you name mm -hmm. it and voicemail. Um, when you look at what's happening around the world and, and, and various industry sectors, I wonder if you could maybe give us some insights around 
uh, you know, from an industry's perspective, um, what you're seeing with regard to adoption and some of the challenges and opportunities around um, how AI is being applied at the edge now that we're seeing, as you said, you know, a lot more intelligence moved out where, where the data is being generated. Yeah, sure. Um, you know, so every industry is a little bit different. There's some very strong common use cases that run across industries, but how they get implemented is slightly different. So, for example, um, retail, one of the things that we're seeing take off uh, really rapidly right now, too, is um, touchless displays and interactive kiosks. So if you think about like NLP, natural language processing, me being able as a consumer to walk into a store and ask the screen, you know, where certain items are or, you know, point me in the direction of or, hey, here's my QR code, scan, scan my order, point me to the right place. We're limiting the contact that a consumer might have within that space, but we're also enhancing the consumer experience. So the store is benefiting and the consumer is benefiting in that case. So we're seeing that digital display start to take off a lot. That has very similar application, though, as you look at airports, you know, kind of to your Boeing comment, right? How are we directing people through airports in a way that can um, keep traffic flowing in um, safe and secure and um, kind of rational manners? Uh, it could also play out into things like the Olympics, right? And how are we helping people move from one place to another um, when you have the biggest set of games in the world? Uh, so that, that's one kind of key area. Industrial is a really interesting spot for me to kind of play in. Um, one, because I started my career in cars. So I love cars. Um, <laughs> you and me also, both. <laughs> yeah, we're, we're building a 68 Ford right now. Like I'm super excited. Uh, wow. 68 Bronco. It's super fun. Um, but one of the things about that industry is it also tends to be um, a little bit slower to adopt because you have such massive infrastructure in place, right? Going in and retrofitting some of these major um, manufacturing plants is not really cost feasible in a lot of a lot of instances. So there's some really interesting places that we've seen um, companies partner with us bring really um, really cool solutions. So for example, Audi, I, I mentioned them up front. They worked with us and an ISV to start to inspect all of the welds within their car. So if you think about it, I think they do like a thousand cars a day or so. And within every single car, there's something like 5,000 welds. So if you think about, you know, to your point on the Boeing, right? Um, the math on that is 5 million welds a day, roughly. Um, and they were pulling cars off to hand inspect each one of those. Well, by adding AI into this mix, now they can use predictive maintenance basically to check those welds and be much more certain of how strong and how um, effective that weld was. Did it actually connect those pieces of metal? Is it doing what it's supposed to do? So instead of checking a subset, they can now use predictive maintenance um, with uh, computer vision and check every single one of those 5 million welds. So it's a really interesting way to bring in cameras, right? Bring in AI-enabled cameras into their existing plant environment, but end up coming out with a product that is much better from a, um, an, an understanding perspective. They know more about what's happening with that car because of the predictive maintenance. So wow. if you then take you know, that example... Um, sorry, I get super excited. So just stop me when you when you want to <laughs> when you want to stop. Um, but if you take that same idea, right, predictive maintenance, and shift it to oil and gas, um, we've worked with companies to basically bring in robots and drones to use predictive maintenance, but to send them under the water and look at oil rigs. 
right? Because whether or not those welds or those bolts are getting rusty, that could have catastrophic impacts to both that company and the environment if something were to fail. So being more forward-looking, but doing that without having to send a human into those very um, inhospitable environments is a huge value add. And you can also then have one of those robots in each one of your rigs, um, and you're not sending that one person that understands how to look for all of the potential problems um, from rig to rig to rig, So, which means you're also then being able to increase um, how much pre- uh, preventative maintenance you're doing um, on any given location. I could go on and on, but there's there's a lot of really interesting ways that companies are starting to bring this in. Um, I mean, we're seeing, seeing fast food companies start to uh, consolidate a bunch of their um, single-use systems onto one kind of centralized platform because it does a few things. You have more capabilities, but actually less technology within your store, which means you don't have the same high IT costs that you could have if you had to send out somebody that understands how to work seven different machines. You have somebody that understands one machine, but you can also then do remote maintenance on that one machine because now that one machine has connectivity back into the cloud. It's got remote manageability. It's got these extra functions which reduce your tech roles and and your cost associated with that. So again, just another way AI has really helped changing um, how uh, our customers are kind of showing up to them customers and also on the back end reducing their operating costs. Well, each of those are a show in their own right in many ways because uh, like you, I'm, I'm a car <laughs> nut. Well, I love the, I, yeah. I, I love the passion in this because um, you know, sometimes when you, you end up in a, in a space of deep engineering, it's easy to kind of gloss over just how fascinating some of these are. But you know, like you, I, I'm a big fan of the car space because uh, I think that uh, we can put sensors on older vehicles or older trucks and older ships and actually mm-hmm. detect things that uh, could be a risk if we were maintaining an old fleet that we've got a sunk cost on that we have to get an ROI on over a long time of 10, 15 years. But at the, at the pointy end of things, you know, I'm a big fan of Formula One and I look at all the data that comes out of, you know, uh, an e-racing car or, or a traditional uh, fossil fuel racing car and, and the amount of data that comes out and people get angry going, oh, you know, we shouldn't be burning fossil fuels racing the cars. And I'm like, well, that's where we test things that we then put into our normal cars. So, you know, we have an Audi Q5, for example, and the, 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 the turbocharger that came from that came from the Formula One team. They just scaled it down to consumer grade. And without that testing, it wouldn't be the same product. But I did like your point around um, the use of, of uh, I guess, uh, you know, artificial intelligence and machine learning, machine learning in particular in spaces where it's potentially better to remove humans from those, like, you know, big, heavy car bodies moving around being welded. That's a high-risk area. So, you know, putting humans in that space puts them in risk, but also it just, you know, it only scales with the number of humans you can hire and humans get tired. That's normal, whereas robots don't, as long as you maintain them and the bearings don't burn out, the, the robot keep going all day. And the example of putting things into deep water, or particularly around high risk areas like oil wells, is fantastic because we can scale them out. They can run 24-7 and reduce risk to life. That's brilliant. I also like the idea you can get insights from this. And I guess that's one of my next key points I want to get onto. And there's a all this data and capturing it's great, but sometimes we see companies go from building data lakes to data swamps and they're not quite aware what to do with it. Um, and I think a lot of the airlines got stuck with that where they, you know, they were buying new planes that had lots of sensors, but that weren't necessarily well enough geared to deal with that. Um, I'm keen to get uh, some insight from you with regard to Intel's customer approach currently of, of how you advise and work with companies to then turn some of that data into actionable insights because a lot of people hear the term data-driven decision-making 
but that all really then assumes we've got the tools and the systems, the infrastructure, and in this case, the the Internet of Things sensors and the artificial intelligence underpinning all that to be able to actually make decisions on data we see or to do the analytics. From your point of view, what, what's the overall approach that you're taking currently uh, across Intel with customers to help them turn some of that data that you're helping to collect with sensors and the IT infrastructure you're deploying with them to turning that into actual insights? Yeah, that's a great question. And it's not one, unfortunately, I can answer kind of uniformly because um, we it, it really depends on the customer we're talking to and what their swamp or lake might look like um, and what they're trying to solve for. Um, you know, in some cases, we may be able to point them towards a couple of ISVs that we partner really closely with that have pre-trained algorithms that could give a company a starting point. Because typically what happens and what we've seen is those um, the unstructured data and the um, ability to tag or look at it is really complicated. And that's what's supplement all of this is how do you get to the point where you have an algorithm you trust enough to be able to then go put it into put it into practice, um, and AI is the very first place that garbage in, garbage out. That that mantra really lives. If the data is not right, or we're looking at the wrong types of information, then the insights that come back will be garbage as well. Um, so it, you know, every customer is a little bit different. Everything you know, there's different opportunities to you know. I, I know some companies that have actually crowdsourced. They will actually hire a company to go crowdsource some data labeling so they can get themselves started. There's some really interesting um, advancements with unstructured data testing um, and data training where you can use, you know, some combinations of AI techniques, AI and ML techniques to make, um, to get started. And then you kind of build a, a learning algo that over time gets much, much smarter. That takes time, but if you've got, you know, petabytes and petabytes of data, that could be the right place to start. Um, but that's where we, you know, like I said, we, we like to make sure that the customers are the heroes and we're the supporting actor. That's where we would want to go dig in and really understand the problem set and then help, you know, kind of direct uh, to some of the partners that we work with within the ecosystem to get the right solution for any company. Um, I really like RL. I really like reinforcement learning. I think there's a lot of goodness there, um, but it's still kind of on the nascent side. Uh, but I think that over time could be really impressive for companies that, um, you know, don't have a lot of the structure in their existing data sets. I like that. I was involved in uh, a project about five or six years ago for one of the largest power utilities here in Australia called Ergon. And we, um, we were given the challenge of, of taking asset management and um, vegetation management out of the business, creating a startup and then using technology to kind of reduce the operating cost of that and then essentially sell the service back to the utility. And a lot of things you're talking about there where we were, there was an interesting anecdote where uh, we put sensors and scanners, so 2D imagery and LIDAR for 3D point collection for um, on the bottom of airplanes and then flew it around the surface of the planet and mapped the world in 3D and 2D. And there was a point where we had to, we couldn't work out why all these power poles were leaning a couple of degrees to the, let's say the left as it were, uh, or, or west. And it turned out that after we did all this math and adjusted all the algorithms and retrained all the machine learning scripts and tools to figure out what was going on, someone worked out they just had mounted the camera a couple of degrees off skew and um, we had an entire data set we had to recook and, and adjust by a couple of degrees. And in the end, we just flew, we flew the missions again because it was faster to get the data raw and recook it. But, you know, so there's so many of those scenarios where you've got to look at the data and actually say, well, what, what is it telling us? And does what it tells us make sense? 
Um, but I, one of the things you mentioned there, and I, and I know you've got a lot of things like OpenVINO, you've got a whole bunch of other different tools and systems. Um, I'm always fascinated by the use of, of 2D imagery in the form of, sort of like you know, 4K images out of cameras because uh, I see a lot of things coming out of like the cameras and smartphones now that are producing 4K imagery and layering that. And one of the mm-hmm. things you alluded to there, I guess, is getting multiple types of insights where one scan of the data might tell me that uh, somebody's inside a physical proximity area that I've drawn a box around, that another piece of algorithm, another piece of math and running an algorithm over that same data set might actually look for the face and then you know, work out whether it's a child or an adult or a cat or a dog. And then so on another piece of software above that pipeline might even work out whether it's somebody that's been an approved face to be in there and working or whether it's not. And you can just keep getting more insights on that the, the longer you, on the, the deeper you layer things onto it, right? And, um, exactly. And as a Unix geek, we're kind of used to putting things in a pipeline anyway. Um, and uh, so I, I love what's happening in this space where, uh, you know, seeing a lot of the things that are coming out of Intel where you, you capture the data, you can catalog it, you can tag it with the various things, you can keep making the data more intelligent, keep verifying it, um, all the way through to helping people understand the value of that and how to monetize it or at least gain value from it. Because I think there's a lot of focus on monetizing data, uh, which often distracts people from then figuring out how to get value out of it because value doesn't always have to be a monetized thing. Um, but uh, yeah, there's an, the number of those use cases are now exploding. It's kind of exciting, breathtaking, I guess, for a lot of organizations. But you mentioned GE Healthcare, and I, I, I wonder if uh, yeah. uh, you can give us a little more insight into kind of what you're doing with them because they're, you know, they're seen not just as a global leader in the space of healthcare and, and obviously General Electric and, and making things that hum, but you've got some amazing uh, successes there, I know, with around particularly healthcare, which I guess is very pertinent given what's going around the world with the uh, global pandemic of COVID-19 impacting us. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, GE Healthcare has been uh, one of our partners for a long time. So we've got a few different um, really interesting AI use cases. I'll kind of hone in on one, though. Um, you know, we've talked about this volume of data a few different times. Um, from what we can tell and all the research we've seen, any given hospital creates 50 uh, petabytes of data per year, right? And the if you think about that and you start to break it down, 90% of that is medical imaging. Um, 50% of the medical imaging comes from x-ray scanners, which is fairly old technology by comparison. To- um, but we've actually been able to work with... Um, with GE and really look at, uh, you know, how do we kind of redefine how we look for things like pneumothorax and being able to discover whether or not someone's got it. Um, and the combination, you mentioned OpenVINO, which, you know, thank you very much. That's one of the software tools we bring because, you know, IoT isn't a matter of Intel being a silicon provider. Intel is a solutions provider in this space in so much as there's a lot of hardware, a lot of software, and then the combination of those two to build really um, powerful powerful platforms that our customers can then leverage. And in this case, it was a combination of both the hardware and OpenVINO that really helped um, build out a, a better detection me- mechanism um, they can now, it's, I think, about a little over three times faster than what they could do before. They can now detect pneumothorax within seconds, um, all off of an x-ray scan. You know, and one of the other ones we've done with them um, is, uh, uh, I think we ended up with almost a 6x increase um, uh, just above their targets. So 14x higher than what they used to do. Um, but six cents X in terms of uh, CT scans, you know, and what are we able to determine with a CT scan? Yeah, I kind of mentioned up front this whole idea of um, 
you know, knowledge, where knowledge and scarcity intersect, there is a scarcity of radiologists in the world. Um, and if you're able to bring in some AI into reading a CT scan, then you're able to diagnose these patients faster. Now, it doesn't mean that you're not going to want to back it up, right? I, I think there's a very, very big um, role that uh, that doctors will continue to play in all of this, and you never want to have an AI. You never want AI in a black box. That can become dangerous over time. Um, but if you can start to diagnose things within a um, you know ninety percent, ninety five, one hundred percent, much faster, and help your patient get to recovery much better, um, then you do a couple of things, right? You make the patient's life better, which is a huge win on the on the person side. But you're also reducing operational costs because now you're able to treat them and potentially release them faster. So there's a there's some interesting opportunity around all of that, and it all centers on you know kind of to your point, imaging, and how can we look at images um, and be much more effective as to what we're seeing. Help doctors find the area to look at first, right? Even if it's not diagnosing all the way down to the, this person has X issue, but it's a, hey, in this little tiny quadrant, this is where you really need to go focus because this is the anomaly. Um, And maybe it doesn't go as far as diagnosing, but it it can speed up the path to diagnosis because it can point out um, where things don't um, line up with what the expected outcome would be. Right. And I think one of the great things I'm seeing now with what a lot of these uh, uh, organizations are doing, and I won't name any because I don't want to get in trouble for it, but uh, I had a project recently about three (laughs) years ago in Japan where uh, there was a scenario where a particular person had it, symptoms that couldn't be diagnosed the way that we normally expect. And um, the data set was given to a, a, a broader audience, particularly students, and essentially a hackathon was run globally to sort of figure out what, what was going on in this data set because it didn't make sense. There were three different types of, of vectors that things were going along. And a bunch of students threw themselves at it and worked out that there were some issues with the decompression of the imagery and then rewrote the decompression algorithm and got better insights from the actual image itself. And then it, it immediately showed what it actually was. And, um, and not only that, but when they, when they did this, they managed to clean up a whole bunch of other imagery and then go back to people who had diagnoses over the last few years and potentially you know, save lives because they'd found things that hadn't been diagnosed because of the image. And, and then they decided they would just keep writing more tools. And then they just, you know, and over and over and over, they've now essentially open sourced it, I think where they, again, you know, we used to call them rats. There's a long reason why it's called rat, but it wasn't to do with a rodent. But we used to write these little things that essentially said, if we could deploy this little agent and just keep crawling through the data, it will eventually find something. Um, and, and off it went. Uh, so I think there's some exciting things to be done around the space. And, and I'm, I know talking to some of the team at G Healthcare, they're making great use of your new Gen 3 uh, Xeon scalable processor with the built-in machine learning capabilities. Uh, at the big end of town, the, the, the server end of town, and, and racks and racks of compute, but also looking at using the likes of the new Atom P5900 at the edge of space where things are actually in the field or in hospitals and whatever, where they need enough compute to pull good data off and make some sense out of it, but at the same time just process it with high-speed pipelines. So I think you're giving them some amazing tools uh, and tool sets to do great things with these, and I, I suspect that in the next sort of three to five years we're going to have a, an amazing sort of, you know, moment where healthcare in particular just looks and says, wow, we finally got the physical tools and the compute and the storage. We finally got the math. Uh, and what I refer to now is when people talk about software-defined infrastructure, I keep saying, well, don't forget the things like uh, machine learning models are really software-defined infrastructure. You can just keep mm-hmm. fine-tuning them and just apply them. And then all of a sudden, new interesting conversations happen. Well, I, 
my, my final question, I wonder, leading on the back of that is that, you know, when people are looking at some of the things you're talking about and some of the capabilities that Intel brings to the table and certainly your IoT uh, business unit and all the amazing things that you get to work with every day, over the next 12 to 18 months, if I could, as a final question to you before we wrap up, you know, the world's under the pull of a global pandemic. There's no surprise to that. We, I think we're getting relatively close to getting on top of it. I don't know that we're necessarily going to find a vaccine, but we're certainly developing coping mechanisms. Um, as organizations are looking to leverage artificial intelligence at the edge and some of the capabilities that Intel brings to the table with IoT, uh, physical and logical and virtual infrastructure, what sort of things should they be considering in their approach to making decisions over the next sort of eight, 12 to 18 months as they look to leverage AI at the edge in your view? You want to make sure that we're getting the most out of your investment in terms of your infrastructure, right? So a lot of times, because of how um, we've built the technology, you can actually start with uh, some of the compute infrastructure that's already in place. You know, so you, you mentioned Xeon and, and what we've done within Xeon. Um, Xeon's got a couple of capabilities that make inference much faster. Um, and what's really nice about that is you're then not disrupting the data flow. If you already have Xeon in place, you're likely to be able to use it. And then you're, A, not going and investing in new hardware, which is great, um, but you're also giving yourself a place to start without doing a huge capital outlay. And that, to me, is really valuable in a time when we're all trying to um, – make sure we're seizing the most out of this new normal um, and making sure that we're making the best business decisions to serve our own customers um, long-term. So that, that would be the first thing I would do is, you know, look at what's, what type of technology you've got access to right now and what sort of POCs can you put in place? Because one of the things that tends to be a big barrier for folks is where do I start um, and I'm a big believer in, you know, we're not going to be able to bite off a whole elephant at once, but if you, you know, one bite at a time type of thing. So start with where that intersection of knowledge and scarcity is for your business. And if you can start to solve for the scarcity points, then you can start to scale it across your organization much more effectively. Um, so those would be the two big things. And I think that those can get done for any company relatively quickly. Um, you know, and we're happy to help in whatever way our, our customers would like. Um, but there's a lot of really great companies that we partner with um, that can help kind of through that process too. It reminds me of a phrase that the New Zealand Maoris have, which is a uh, fish at your feet. And they have this view that there's no point getting a canoe and paddling out to the middle of the ocean going fishing if you can stand on the coastline and with the, at the surf and throw a line in there and catch something for dinner. Well, Alexis, it's been amazing to spend some time with you and get some insights into both your role and the key things that you're doing there at Intel across this whole space of IoT, and in particular, how people can look at uh, AI at the edge uh, as, as, I guess, a, a source of not just business benefit, but also technical benefit that they can apply. And uh, I think we're in for a very interesting next year to year and a half as we sort of come out of this global pandemic experience. And we see a lot larger deployments happening now because I guess people haven't been able to physically get in the field and deploy sensors. But uh, in healthcare in particular, we've seen some very amazing, exciting stories take place as people have had to rapidly gear up to deal with all the challenges we have around ICUs and so forth. We would love to have you back on the show at some point and uh, maybe post uh, COVID-19 pandemic and see how things are going to pan out. But in the meantime, thank you so much for all the great insights and appreciate your time. And uh, hopefully you stay healthy and safe. And uh, as you move into the sort of getting out of the work from home back to the office over the next 12 to 18 months, uh, you and your team stay healthy and uh, keep doing amazing things that are Intel with all things around uh, AI at the edge with uh, IoT. Thanks so much, Des. It's been so much fun being here and chatting with you. And, and likewise to you and your family, please stay safe and healthy.